Open your Bibles to Joel, final chapter in Joel this morning as we take a look at the valley of decision, or, or this morning rather, the conclusion in the valley of decision, the conclusion in the valley, and uh, where it all comes to this, this big head and everything, everything comes to conclusion, everything comes to that final battle. Um, this morning, we, we look at, at that concept. Of course, the, the entire book of Joel really can be summed up as a proclamation of the coming day of the Lord. Uh, that's a, a, a term used all throughout. Really, everything in that, that this short book leads up and points towards, teaches us about that day of the Lord, and it's in this in this final chapter here. We've got this big conclusion that comes up to it. It reminds me when you get into a, a, watching a movie. Um, I love some of those historical um, war movies that you can see sometimes, and and I just I, I enjoy watching that kind of stuff, especially if it's if it's based on a, a true story. And, and you know, there's always that there's always that final battle scene in something like that, right? And when you get to that final battle scene, you know you've been watching the whole movie build up and you know at the end, it's all going, it's gonna be big, right? It's the, it's the best part of the movie. It's the part you've anticipated the whole way. Um, everything is building to this huge crescendo at the end. You know all the figures are gonna show up for the battle. Everybody's gonna show out. It's gonna be this, this ginormous just everybody together. There's going to be action. There's going to be some great sequences there. And you're just, you're going to be on the edge of your seat the whole time. And that's what we're looking at in Joel chapter three here. It's this big crescendo leading to this final sequence here. And in this final sequence, as all of the earth comes to be judged, all of the earth, the nations, he says, are gathered together. And here's this, this big conclusion in the, 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 the final chapter here of Joel, it, it speaks on one hand almost to a, a, a local thing, but then on the other hand, it's prophetic of the big deal, the, the final conclusion, the end of the world, so to speak. And as we, as we look at this passage here today, there's this, in, in the midst of all this prophetic nature of this, there's this warning that comes to us to be prepared to come to the Lord in that valley of decision. So let's take a look, Joel chapter three, 21 verses we're gonna read this morning. Let's read to them together today. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges, God judges. That's the... The, the valley of God's judgment is what that means. Verse number two, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. 
Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabians, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people. Let's read that line again. The Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will come, become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. What an awesome, powerful, and to be quite frank, frightening picture of God coming in to act, to judge, to, to, to bring down decision on the people of the earth. We see this, and this is the kind of prophecy that, that we think of with, that just brings terror, it brings just frighteningness. And we look at this kind of, uh, this kind of judgment, this kind of prophetic word that comes from the Lord. This is the stereotypical type of prophecy that, that people come to think of when they hear that, that concept in scripture, when they hear the idea of the end times coming. In truth, this passage, like really all of Joel together as a whole, is very difficult to determine when it might happen. Is this speaking of a localized prophecy of days past? Is this speaking of a global judgment still yet to come in the future? Is it is it a narrow or is it a broad in the sense that it affects a few people or does it affect everybody? And when you look at this, really what you come to the conclusion of and the, the interpretation when you read this, it's less about when and where it happens 
And it's more about that day of the Lord and understanding what God is doing and will accomplish. Understanding his character and his person as the judge of the earth. Understanding that he has at at any point in time the right and the authority to come in and pass judgment wherever and whenever he sees fit. In truth, the day of the Lord, while that does speak, I believe, to the future final end day of the Lord, it also is very much something that can happen on a specific people group at a, a time when they need judgment as well. And you could apply that concept to many different times throughout history and understanding this is the day of the Lord coming in to judge a a specific nation, a specific group of people at a specific time. And so when we look at this concept and we see the Lord coming in to pass his judgment, it should keep us on our toes. It should keep us on the edge of our seat. It should have us at that point where we wake up every day and, and we have a little bit of that godly fear of respect that keeps us living for the Lord our God. It keeps us on the edge of our seats for him. Not, not sitting back and you know just kind of taking it easy, but understanding that at all points, at all times, we ought to be prepared for the return of the Lord. He could come, as the word says, as a thief in the night. He may not come for everybody. He may call you home at any point in time, or he may call you to judgment or us to judgment at any point in time. And we ought to be living out in a certain fear and trembling and working out our purpose and mission for him with that. So let's take a look at some of the things in the day of the Lord and this this great valley of decision that we see what God does here. The first of which is this, the Lord will decide. The Lord will decide. This, the, name of the, the very name of this valley is the Valley of Jehoshaphat, also the Valley of Decision. Of course, Jehoshaphat, we talked about that, I mentioned earlier, it's, it's very simply just God judges, Yahweh judges, and he's bringing this, this judgment in. Jehoshaphat was a common name in the Old Testament. There was a king by that name. Um, there were some court officials in, uh, in Saul's day. It, there's people kind of throughout the, 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 the history of Israel. So it wasn't an unusual name at all, but this as a valley was a specific thing. And this, this valley where God's going to come in and he's going to judge is a place where God calls people together to him and judges them. There's debate over where exactly this valley is. Some point to um, one of the, the many valleys right in the surrounding region outside of Jerusalem. Um, Kidron is one that, that becomes a, a, a popular hypothesis there because that's where they would uh, commonly, when they were purging the nation, they would throw the idolatry and the idols out in, in that valley. Um, so it's kind of a wasteland, so to speak. The others have been mentioned. Uh, Joel doesn't give us really any idea exactly where this valley is. I think probably the more accurate thing, as is the case with a lot of Joel, is it's not necessarily important to know the exact place that it is, but rather to understand what the place is as far as its purpose. You remember, Joel, all the way through from the beginning to this point in the conclusion we just read, we don't have any indication 
concretely of when this book was written. We don't have any indication of, um, of whose reign it was written in. It stands kind of unique amongst the prophets in not having really any timeline at all. Some have hypothesized from the early king reign all the way to the late exile period. That's a broad range. That'd be from the very beginning of any of the prophets, uh, prophetic books in the Old Testament, all the way to the very end, right up next to Malachi. And so there, when, when it was written, even, even understanding all of the, the events that are happening in the book are somewhat ambiguous. That locust army coming in in chapter one and identifying in chapter two is the, the army in chapter two still yet the locust army or is it now a human army coming in to evade? And, and so there's, there's a lot of ambiguity here and I think that that continues on with this valley in chapter three. Understanding the valley in, in Joel is less about trying to figure out geographically where it is and more about understanding the nature of God when it comes to his judgment. And so the valley of Jehoshaphat and then also the valley of decision is called. It's the place where God calls people together to sit them down and to begin judging people. Let's take a look at those two names. The first one, uh, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Yahweh judges. The valley where God judges. And when we look at that and try to understand what that means, here's the, the conclusion that we come to. Yahweh is that personal name of God. It's the, it's the very close, intimate name that, that God gave uh, or, or, or God revealed of himself to his people. It's the very name. In fact, some people describe it as the breath of God because when you pronounce it, it's like breathing in and breathing out, <sighs> right? And, and so that speaks to the very life that God has given us. It's an intimate and personal thing. Here, as we look at this, this name, it reminds us that when God judges, it is very much a personal thing that he comes in to do. They could have very easily, I assume, called, called it the valley of um, the king of kings judging. They, they could have named it by one of those more impersonal names of God or more generic terms. But here, no, it's the personal name of God and understanding that when God comes in to judge, it hits personally. But then you take that concept of the, the personal identity of God and you, compare, or you, you, you join it together with the concept of judging. That's a, 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 a difficult concepts to put together. And the only way I think to really navigate and understand that is to think about when a parent has to come down hard in punishment on their children. It is a very personal, intimate thing because that's our, our flesh. That's our, our children, our, our, our heritage. And, and judging on that has to hit the heartstrings. Kind of like when daddy used to say, this is gonna hurt me more than it's gonna hurt you. Right before he laid into our backside, right? Now, some of y'all are laughing, but listen, you're guilty of it. You said that to your kids. I haven't said that to any of mine yet because it still stings for me to even think about it. Why does that hurt? 
It's, it's, I would assume, much easier to sit in the judge's chair at the courthouse downtown and pass judgment on a complete stranger than it is to pass judgment on your own children. Then imagine God passing judgment on his creation, whom he loved, whom he breathed into the breath of life, created perfect to live and to honor him. And yet, in this valley, that's exactly what he does. The valley of Jehoshaphat. Then notice that second term there, the valley of decision. He says that uh, twice in verse 14, discussing the, the valley of decision where the people are multiplied or the multitudes are gathered together. This is an interesting concept here because that valley of decision has in its root word the concept of a cutting, threshing floor type of an instrument. You think almost um, something that would come in and, and, and cut and separate what is good from what is not, what is wicked, what is righteous from what is unrighteous. You might even think of a plow coming in to separate or, or trench the ground, okay? And as it does, it, it's going to separate out the rock from the soil, what's good from what's evil. It's the kind of instrument that cuts deep and painful to reveal the flaws, the sins, the wickedness, that hide below the surface. This is the valley of God's decision. And that root word speaks to the fact that it will cut deep to decide what is good and what is wicked. What, what can be kept and what must be tossed out. And that, that root word of decision to, to pierce below the surface and reveal the heart of man. Because who, who can know the heart of man except God in heaven? Who can know whether or not there, there, there's good down there or whether it's all wicked? Who can know? The Bible says the heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. The Bible also says that we see on the outside, but God looks on the inside because he is the God of the valley of decision. I think of, when I think of this valley of decision and the Lord's deciding here, I, I, I reminded kind of of a, a field getting ready to plant. Now I'm not a farmer. I, I mean, I can't, I couldn't grow things in the best of conditions. And I've seen some people that grow it in the worst of conditions. I'm pretty sure my father-in-law could plant a seed in a bucket of concrete and it would grow. He's just got the green thumb. I'm a green and I don't have a green thumb. And I think about a field and, you know, you get a, a new field and you got to tear down all the, the trees and the bush and underbrush. You got to clear the field first. And then after you do that, you've still, what, what's seen, right? You get rid of what's seen. You still got to cut into the ground to see what's below the surface. When you do that, you might come across some rock or some hard ground before you get to the, the fertile soil. And that stuff's gotta be removed. You can't plant anything in that. You gotta get that stuff out. So you have to pierce below the surface to find out what sort of ground it is. 
and to know whether it, it, it's good and right to be planted on or whether it's just not a great ground. I watched a video of a farmer recently. He was taking care of a, a rock in his field. Now, this wasn't a rock, and this wasn't a rock. I mean, this thing was huge. I don't know. I mean, it was a boulder. It looked like it was probably 12, 15 feet across. I mean, this was a huge boulder. And it had been, it had been in his field all, of, all the time he'd been farming. He always had to plow around it. And uh, he was going to try to take care of it. So he got the machinery out. And he was digging around it. And uh, turned out it was bigger than he imagined. And so his solution was he was just going to dig a deeper hole and then push this rock down in it and cover the dirt on top of it. The rock just stayed there. But he was able to use the ground after that. But you know, God isn't going to leave that rock there. He's going to pierce through to see what's under the surface. And that's God's role in this valley of decision, this valley of judgment, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Notice not only will God decide, but the Lord will also determine. The Lord will determine. You look at this and you see in God's judgment that he is the one who determines the consequences that are to be applied to the one who trespasses against him. Because it was God who was trespassed against, it becomes God's decision, God's determination to decide what the consequences will be. You know, what's interesting in this passage, there's, there's several nations mentioned here. And the, the short of, of most of it is when you look at like Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, and uh, then you get even down to the Greeks who were the ones that engaged in the slave trade of, uh, of the, the Israelites. And you see all of these. What, what, what's important, you can trace the history through them. And I know some of y'all love to just kind of wander through the, the history there. And, and it's fascinating to see how these different nations treated the, the Israelites, God's people through, throughout time here. But what's really fascinating, I think, is right in the middle of the passage, verse four, he talks about Tyre, Sidon, and the regions of Philistia. And, and what's fascinating when you read this is they thought that they were doing good for Israel's God. They thought that they were doing good on behalf of God. And God steps in and says, no. They, they in some twisted way, thought that they were enacting God's judgment on God's people. And in truth, they were, but God called them out for the wicked way in which they did it. And, and as you look at this, I think this is what's so important for the American church today. So many of us think that we're doing what's good and right for the Lord. But God looks down at us and determines So many of us, we think that, that, we, that we are accomplishing this great thing and that we are building the kingdom of God and God looks down and he, and he says, that's unrecognizable as my kingdom. It is not me, I'm not in that. And yet how often we do and we labor and, 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 and we, we, we think that we are doing for God and yet no, we're not. 
We're building our own kingdom or we're building some other type of kingdom, but you look at it and you say, that is not God's kingdom. Only he, of course, can determine this. You look at the, that one particular verse, verse, uh, verse number four, and uh, he uses the word recompense in there. And, and that's a word we don't really use that much anymore. Our language probably has gotten to a point of, I don't know, we, we've dumbed it down made it super simplistic. And we don't use a very wide variety of words like this. And so when you look at this word recompense, you really kind of got to dig into what he's going at. Three times in that verse, he uses a form of the word recompense, twice um, as, as a noun and then once as a verb. And then later he even says, I believe verse seven, he even uses the word again. Let's dig into this word and try to understand what God is doing here. He says, let's read the verse again. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. The first time he uses that word is when he's calling out these nations and asking them rhetorically, are you trying to repay me in some type of good, in some type of recompense? The wording in that question, are you rendering me to me a recompense? It, it, it's similar to almost asking this, did you think you were repaying or benefiting me in fullness or in completeness? When you dive into trying to gather what God is asking them, that's, that's where he's, he's, he's saying this, are you trying to pay back to me or benefit to me in this, this completeness or this fullness of recompense. Hidden underneath our English translation is actually a, a, another fascinating word there in rendering a recompense. There, there's that word recompense or, or repaying something, but then there's also this, this uh, from the root word of what we, what we would hear in say shalom. Okay, it's not exactly the same, but it's a, a cousin or a root word that lays next to that. And shalom is a, a very common greeting in, uh, in the Israelite or the Jew, uh, Jewish part of the world still today and would be very familiar to us. Um, the simple kind of understanding of the word shalom is just peace, right? And that, that would be the easiest way to understand what that word means. This cousin idea to it uh, in this verse, when he says, rendering to me a recompense, this cousin idea to it, it's similar to peace, but it's actually this concept of completeness or fullness, okay? And, and or it, if you will, maybe peacefulness, all right? And that's what, that's what God is looking at him. He said, are you thinking that you are giving back to me some type of complete offering or complete payment? Not at all. We think sometimes in our lives that we have paid to God incomplete. And yet we haven't even scratched the surface. I witnessed to somebody recently and they had that, that and we know this, they had that concept of uh, karma. What I do bad, what I do good, as long as the good outweighs the bad, I'll be okay, Right? And, and that, that's the, the, the mentality that most of the world lives by, whether they call it karma or not. The, the mentality of most of the world is this. 
yeah, most, of a, most people still will, will acknowledge there's some sort of judging or higher power out there. And there's a lot of atheists that try to deny this, but th- there's still this, this concept of some type of God out in the universe, or some people think there's many gods or whatever, but there, there's this concept, as long as my good outweighs, I'll, I'll be okay if there's an afterlife. And, and they think that they are repaying God with some type of fool fullness of payment, some type of completeness that would ultimately buy their peace, would buy their eternity, would buy their soul. It doesn't work that way. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't work that way because you can't work enough for God. You, you, can't, you can't do enough for him to please him. You know, as I often do, I ask this person, I said, well, you know, I said, let me ask you this. I said, if all your life you did nothing but good, all your life, you did nothing but good. You never messed up a single time. You never broke the law. You never broke God's law. You did absolutely perfect and good and just and righteous in every way, shape, and form. But then one day you got, you know, really mad at your coworker. You pulled out a gun and you shot him. You killed him. Could you stand before the judge and say, but my good outweighs my bad? No. There's no forgiveness for that. There must be payment for it. And that's the way that our sin is. We we think that we can outweigh the good from the bad. And, And God's looking, he's saying, well, yeah, but you still have to pay for this wickedness. And he turns it around and that next verse, and he gives the use of recompense, which is his determination against them. Then it will come swift and speedily. And by the way, in every sense of the word, it's just. There is no unjust judgment from God. In every sense and way of the word, it is just. We like to think about God as as this, God is love, right? And he is, he absolutely is. Anything that we could possibly know about love, true love must come from God because God is love. The only way to fully understand, the only way to appreciate love is by understanding the love that God has for us because God is love. You want love in your marriage? You need to first know the love of God. If you wanna know how to love your spouse in a good and, and, and full, complete way, the only way to do that is by, loving, or by, by experiencing and knowing the love of God for us. Same with your children, same with your friends, same with your family, no matter who it is. If you're going to know and understand and appreciate love, you're going to do that by knowing and understanding and experiencing, receiving the love of God because God is love. In the same way that God is love, he is always justness. He's all, all, all and complete just in his character. And so his determination against us is absolutely in every way appropriate and right. And here what he says in that term recompense, it's paying back what is due. His determination will be just and right because whatever these people, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, read through the passage, Egypt, Edom, whoever it is, whatever they have done, 
will be returned back swiftly and speedily upon their own heads. Let me ask you this question. If God today, right now, gave us a swift and speedy recompense, a determination upon our own actions, what would be just and right? Right now, if God, if God came into this room and turned this place into a valley of decision, what would be a just and right recompense, both for our collective actions and behavior and also individually? What would be right? God's determination. First of all, the Lord will decide. Secondly, he will determine. And then finally this morning, the Lord will deliver. In the end, the day of the Lord also brought that deliverance for those who, catch this, though they have sinned, they are still counted as God's people. Though they have sinned, they are still somehow counted as God's people. And God will bring a deliverance to them. What's interesting when you study this passage and kind of lay out the perspective of all of it is this. Some of the things that are a warning to some became deliverance to others. Some of the same word usage here. Case in point, Joel uh, 3.13, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13 says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. You see, the determination of the harvest being brought in and the announcement of that harvest and that wine press being full and overflowing was a warning to some. But then verse 18 says this, and in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. What an interesting and fascinating uh, uh, comparison and contrast of those two things. You see, it describes for us in very real picture the fact that when God comes to judge, it is both, <clears throat> excuse me, it is both good for those who are counted as his people, who are counted as righteous, and it is also terrifying for those who are unrighteous. When God comes, it is both the promise of deliverance for some and the judgment of destruction for others. When God returns and when the final day comes, it will mean devastation and death in hell for some and life everlasting in heaven for others. That's the valley of decision when God comes. And so when you look at this final promise that he gives, this final deliverance that he gives, and he speaks to Judah being restored and blessed. It's a reminder to us as well that God has a blessing for those people he counts and calls as his own. God has a blessing for those people who are his people. And even though we should fall in that previous category, those upon whom they, they receive the judgment of God, we, by the, the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we receive a deliverance in that. The word pictures here are beautiful. God's deliverance 
in bringing this restoration of blessing is seen in four different word pictures in, in, in this end passage. The first one is this, these mountains dripping with this sweet wine. It refers obviously to the grapes and, and that which is expressed through the, the, the crushing of those grapes. That word for new wine very literally refers to that immediate juice that comes out of them. It's not anything that is uh, fermented or processed, but it's that immediate. It reminds me as a kid, we, uh, we lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, and uh, behind and beside our house that we lived in there, we had all of these citrus trees. And uh, I'll tell you what, there ain't nothing like fresh squeezed orange juice. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Um, you know, I'll, I'll drink it from the, the bottle. You can go down at the grocery store and that's good too, right? Or, or mom used to get the, um, uh, the, the little frozen thing. Looked like it was in a biscuit package, but it wasn't, you know? Uh, anyway, a little frozen tube of it and um, you'd put, add water to it or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, uh, but there is nothing like fresh squeezed orange juice. There's nothing like a grapefruit that just came off the tree. There's nothing like, like peeling uh, tangerines, tangelos, oranges, grapefruit, all of that stuff, and just eating it fresh, right? Now, some of you are looking at me with these blank stares, and it just tells me you hadn't been down to the good part of Florida and got some of that. You might need to take a little trip, okay? So you're like, I, I don't understand. I thought all oranges grew at Walmart. They don't. Trust me, there's some good stuff out there. You need to try it someday. There's nothing like that. It's, it, there's, it's just something different when it's fresh. Now let me be speaking a language that y'all understand. It's like going up into the mountain and to those uh, apple orchards, getting the fresh apples. They're just a little bit different, a little bit better, right? The peaches right off the, off the tree. Here he's talking about these wine, this, this new sweet wine and it literally, that word is describing what had just come out of the vat. And it's a demonstration of the joy, the overflow of joy. All throughout Joel, he uses that concept of the wine either in its abundance or in it drying up as an expression of either the abundance of joy or the drying up or the lack of joy. And so when he says the mountains will be dripping with sweet wine, it's a visual picture of the vines running up and down the hillside of the grape vines that will just be overflowing and full of grapes. It's almost as if the mountains themselves will be laughing and singing with joy. The second word picture is the hills flowing with milk. That milk obviously is not a... Um, River of milk coming down. I hate to burst your bubble if that's what you thought it was. Um, it'll be okay. When, when the Bible, the Old Testament often will speak of a land flowing with milk and honey, he's referring to the source of the milk and honey, okay? And milk comes from cows and cows eat grass, all right? And honey comes from bees and bees eat pollen from flowers. So when he says flowing with milk and honey, he's speaking of these grass and flowers, this beautiful, green, colorful landscape. And so when he says here that the hills will be flowing with milk, it's a picture, a reference to all of this green grass, this greenery that's going to come back out. 
You say, why is that so significant? We can go outside, we can see some green grass. They couldn't. The locust had devastated everything that was green. And after they had eaten everything that was green, a wave had come through again and even stripped the bark off the trees. It looked like a devastated winterland. Nothing left, nothing of life. And now he says the hills are gonna be flowing with milk. It's this abundant green grass, or if you will, it's a reversal Listen to this, a reversal of the devastation of the locust plague. You see, many people right now are living in a plague. And we we hope, we pray, beg for a reversal of that devastation. And that's what that flowing grassy hills are, the the milk. It demonstrates the reversal of that plague. Number three, the third word picture is the brooks of Judah flowing with water. This would would show the abundance of rain. It would show the, 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 the pouring out of God's rain on his people. Remember in chapter two, that rain came uh, first, literally, physical rain coming down to water the earth. And then second, at the end of chapter two, he said he would pour out his what? His spirit upon all mankind. And so um, the rain or the brooks of Judah and then the springs next, the, the final point, demonstrate God pouring out his rain upon the people, both first physically and it would be a, a um, reminder to the people of that one part of the ancient agricultural world that they had no control over, and that was the rain. And it was a reminder that only, there are some things only God can supply. The rain pouring down on us is a reminder of our dependence upon God to supply what we cannot Sometimes God holds the rain back just to teach us how to be dependent upon him. And then from the brooks of Judah to the spring from the house of the Lord. And I love that picture there because I think that's not the literal rain, but it shows the pouring out of the spirit in chapter two. It shows the spiritual rain. Some of us, need some spiritual rain. Here it's a play on that previous metaphor of the brooks of Judah. And I believe it demonstrates in chapter two, God pouring out his spirit upon us, flowing from the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord, not being this house of the Lord, but being that one very special house of the Lord, the temple, where God established his presence on earth. That same temple mount where Jesus would be judged and tried. The same place where he would be crucified. And from there, he would be poured out. He poured out his blood first, and then God came later and poured out his spirit upon all mankind. Some of us are sitting in a drought, so to speak, begging God, Bring the rain. 
would you please send the rain? Because my soul is dry and thirsty. My soul needs you. Others maybe have never tasted of the rain, the spiritual rain. Your soul isn't just dry and thirsty, it's dead inside of you. Some of us sitting in here know that when the judgment of God comes, we, may, we won't be super happy at first because we have not lived a life to honor him. But we also know that we are safe and secure for eternity because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But then others in here, you fall on the side of Tyre and Sidon and Philistia and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, you fall on the side of those nations who thought that they were doing something good. They thought that they were doing what was good enough to make amends, to make recompense with God. But yet you still fear his determination in your life will not be good. The good thing is there's still time and you can get on the right side of the valley of decision. If you're sitting in here today, final question is this, what side of the valley of decision are you on? Are you on the side of God's people or are you on the side of those who are gonna receive great judgment, devastation, destruction, and ultimately eternal death? If you're on that side, there's a bridge that goes across it. That bridge's name is Jesus Christ. He came to bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God. He did that on a cross. He did it for our sins. And he can change what side of that valley you're on. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're able, would you stand with me? We begin what we call our invitation, a time where we ask God to reveal in us what needs to be changed, a time when we meditate on the word, a time where we repent where we need to repent, also a time where we pray for the lost, pray for those in our lives who need prayer, pray for those who are hurting, sick. During this time, we ask, let God come into your life today and decide what needs to stay and what needs to go. Heavenly Father, we love you. We know that your judgment is um, cutting know it hurts. It can be painful. We also know that following your judgment can be healing. Following your judgment can be restoration. So Lord, we pray that you would judge as you need to judge. Decide as you need to decide then please, oh Lord, don't forget to also bring the rain. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Altar's open.